Hello and welcome to the Human Factor podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name's Michael Esau. I'm a global HR advisor at SAP. And I'm Simon Humphreys. I'm a global solution architect at SAP. So Simon, the uh, the topic for this episode, it's one that you and I were very keen to plan very early in our episode structure, and it's on data. So how crucial is data and, and a consistent data model to the success of an organization? So very meaty. So what are you looking forward to discussing, learning about, you know, in this episode? Yeah, I think, you know, the volume of the data, I think, is critical to this because we're not just talking about a few pieces of information here. And as soon as you start to add volume, I think you've got to be really clear what's the value of it. What do you keep? What do you discard? What do you do with it? And I'd be really interested to see how our guest has some thoughts on that and what he's seen in some of the organizations that he's been working with. Yeah, I think for me, do you know what? I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing ownership of data because I think there's a shift in terms of how we consume data today and, and actually who in the organization is consuming it. So I'd really welcome the the insights today around that sort of ownership. So, so it should be a great conversation. And also, you're obviously leading the conversation today, and I'm in the producer's chair. So, uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation, Simon. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Cunningham as our special guest today. Mark is the co-founder of Anchorstone Consulting, specializing in HR transformation, HR technology adoption, and cultural change. He's been a HR transformation specialist, a strategic advisor, and a global program director for over 20 years across a diverse set of global organizations and industries. He's an expert in successful delivery of complex organizations, business, service, and technology change across all aspects of HR and business change. He has built up a huge amount of experience and has the battle scars to prove it. Welcome to the podcast, Monk. Thanks for having me, Sam. <laughs> So today, we want to explore the topic of data. Uh, as our listeners will have noticed, I'm in the hot seat today. Uh, normally, it would have been Michael, but Michael's helping out on the production side of things. But I'm sure he's going to contribute to this conversation as well. When we look at data, there's lots of statistics on this, but it's fair to say we've never gathered as much data as we do today across all aspects of our lives. Our shopping habits, online viewing habits, information when we're driving for insurance companies, and even our doorbells gather data these days. And this is also true for HR departments within an organization. Gone are those long days of personnel files held in dusty filing cabinets. And many organizations now are looking to adopt digital processes and embracing technical solutions. The challenge is what to do with all of that. Do you keep the data? Do you discard it? Do you mine it? Do you trust it? Do you share it? With the advent of GDPR, we also need to be very precise on who's given access to it. In this episode, we'll explore some of the thinking around what organizations are now capturing in terms of data, who owns this, how organizations manage their HR data, and how the data itself is becoming increasingly more valuable to the wider business beyond just HR. So Mark, to, to kick things off, let's open this conversation with just some of your thoughts as to what you've seen over the last 10 years or so in terms of how that HR data has actually even evolved and about what companies hold and how they've managed that. From the, 10 years ago, most of this was around people and organizational data. It was bricks and mortars or, or people and heads uh, consumed mostly within an HR or finance space. 
I don't think there was much beyond that at that point. There was a lot of data, but it was very much in that very simplistic views of your organizational structure or your kind of cost entity finance structures. You know, I think in the last five to six years, it's, it's moved more into, uh, I call experience data, but more around the people skills, you know, the talent management, the succession, sort of things that you're looking at around the employees or your colleagues, what's their skill sets, what's their background, what can they add in terms of to the value of the actual organization. So very much from an organizational view, what does your people give you? Um, as much as what does the people uh, and what do you give the people? I think the last two or three years, maybe from um, 2018, 2019, call, I call it the feeling data. So like the employee experience, the colleague experience, that kind of, I wouldn't call it contextual. Contextual is coming, but it was more about how, how are you as an employee engaging with me as an organization or with, with, with me as a function? How are you feeling about that? Are you pleased with the service? Are you getting what you want from it? The technology, the people, the process. That, that was kind of what was becoming clear to me in the last few years, really very much about experience-led uh, design was coming through, so people wanted to know how was it, how are you interacting with the, the function, the process and the technology. I think what's really got to me over the last 12 months or so, Simon, is this contextual data. You know, when you look at AI and chatbots and you're talking to a chatbot, it's gathering contextual data relevant to the conversation. You know, and that that's kind of, to be honest, that blows my mind a bit. It's about, you know, how are you feeling at that point in the day? The, 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 the machine is beginning to learn what you're really thinking, even though you may not be seeing it. And that I don't know how you store that. I don't know what you do with that data. But, you know, to go from, you know, the early 2000s to the 2010s, where you just really wanted bricks and mortar people, organizational headcount stuff, you're now into genuinely sensing how your colleagues feel about what they're doing when they're doing it and how they're doing it. And I guess within the, the context of the last 12 months or so, that, that's especially relevant with the working from home environment we've had with the COVID pandemic. But yeah, so it, it, you know, it's gone from an FD, finance director and HR director, really just wanting to know how many people do I have and where are they, to genuinely what does the employee or the colleague feel about working for this organization? And I don't know if we're mature enough yet to assess that, but we're going to have to get mature or we're going to have to let the machines uh, frankly do some of that sort of education of us. So, you know, that kind of feeling, contextual transactional stuff is all getting joined up now. And I still struggle with how that works, to be honest, but it's definitely something that the, the systems and the technology can allow us to do. Um, I guess what's the baseline about how you're measuring that, how you're storing that and what you're doing with that data, that's different from your kind of your, your data about you as a person, you know, your background, your name, rank, your number, uh, your skill sets, where you sit in an organisation. You know, we've got real good controls around that stuff. What do you do with experience-led data, contextualised data? I guess it's just, where does this go? I, I don't think we have the answers, but that's where I've seen that major change going from really core to experience. The other one is the consumption. More and more people are consuming the data um, internal to the organizations, you know, you've obviously always had HR and finance. Uh, you've got more around compliance in certain regulatory environments. You've got a lot around risk as well sometimes. 
you've got data offices beginning to become really prime areas of an organization. What are they doing with the data? Um, what data are you sharing with them? So consumption's got uh, bigger. There's more and more people consuming that data. So I think to your point at the start, the control of that data, especially under GDPR regulations, um, you know, that's really important. I don't think it matters whether you're regulated or unregulated types of industries. You've got a, a, a real obligation now to how you store and what you do with that data. But, you know, moving the data in and out of your organisation has got bigger as well around things like benefits and, you know, not just payroll, but benefits and uh, and, and elements of employee engagement that, that sit somewhere else now. So that's definitely, you know, more people want what they call HR data. Effectively, it's it's people data, uh, it's organisational data, but obviously there's that question as to the ownership and that mostly sits within that HR space. I love that answer, Mark. I mean, I think in, in, in three or four minutes there, you've really summarised the challenges that we face uh, on a number of different fronts. You know, that, that shift from human capital management, these people as assets sort of approach to human experience management and, and tapping into the sentiment of the workforce uh, and then how people consume that data. Even just the concept of, well, it, you've had pre maybe no previous baseline for that experiential data. And then suddenly all this noise comes at you uh, of, of the information that you're gathering and what to do with that. I mean, that can be, that can be overwhelming. It could be misleading. Suddenly, you know, employees have a voice that they might not have had in the past. Were they happy in the past? And now they've got an opportunity to provide feedback. Is it going to be just negative or is it going to be positive? All, all those sort of implications of what we gather. Michael, do you have some, some thoughts on that? Yeah, it was, just a, it was just a follow up for Mark. You know, I mean, I think we almost know the answer, but I'd like Mark's viewpoint. You know, what do you think was really driving the shift to experience? You know, because... The experience economy, the, the experience uh, in terms of actually somebody's voice is really important. We, our ability to listen has got to be 10 times better. What do you think has really driven that, Mark? I think it's just a generational shift, Michael, in many ways. You know, people have access to data or information instantly now. You know, uh, I, I've never used Facebook, Snapchat, now you're into TikTok, you know. So I think I think that there's definitely a generational push where people coming into organisations expect to be able to see it, to interact with it. They do it in the, a consumer-grade real-world environment. Why can't they do it in in, in where I work? Uh, that That's definitely driving a lot of it. I, I think the challenge, though, as an organisation is, you know, it's, most organisations are still led by people who've been doing this for a long time. If you want to ask the question of experience and engagement and you get the answer and you don't like the answer, you still have to act upon that answer. And that's an interesting facet for me. You know, you've always had employee engagement and employee surveys and you measure and you try to track against it. But the reality is, you know, if you're asking that real time type of engagement data now, which is what exists, right? You know, that at the end of it, you know, anybody that does a tax return is always asked, did you enjoy this experience at the end of it? Um, you need to act upon it. You can't just ask it now and then don't action it. So that that in itself is, you know, how does that data evolve to show you that you, you have improved? Well, you don't always have to improve, but at least, you know, you, you've got some sense of, I'm taking an action where I've seen um, a, a challenge exist. So I, I think it's mostly, generational and I think that behavior has driven the older generations to say we have to do something here to 
uh, I sound like an old fuddy daddy, but we have to do something here that allows us to, to, to make sure that as we bring new people into the organisation, that we are flexible enough to be somewhere that they want to stay uh, and contribute. Um, so again, you know, going from an HR lens of people and structures and cost centres and financials, you're at a position now, yeah. And like, you know, we said in, in Simon's that baseline, baseline doesn't come from the technology. Uh, and the baseline doesn't even come, I think, from the questions that you ask. But what, what's, you know, what, there has to be a baseline at some point and then measure from there. But you can only get that base point by asking questions, I guess, in many ways. And then, uh, I guess, the oxymoron is you gather the data against the answers and then figure out where you actually are. And it's always different from where you expect, right? I think we've always understood that um, when you ask a question of somebody, you've got your prejudgment of what the outcome and answer is, and it's very rarely the same. So that's a good thing, but it's you've got to accept that asking the question needs to lead to positive reaction and action. And then just on that, I mean, building on that, so you know, you touched on the topic there that HR might be asking for that information, but what do you do when you receive it? Because if, if you seem to just gather data for the sake of gathering data, that's not going to be a process that somebody buys into for very long. You know, they will want to see some sort of reaction, some sort of change, um, some sort of implication to sharing that information. Uh, what do you see as some of the other challenges around this as well? I mean, there's, there's obviously volume. We've talked about at the, at the start of the show, but you know, what about things like accuracy and maintenance, and, and how do you share that around the organisation beyond and outside the walls of HR? Scale is huge now. I think you know it's always been big, but you're talking millions of terabytes of data in any given minute, hour, day, whatever it might be. I can't profess to be an expert on how much we gather. But, you know, I think I think just the sheer scale of the data is, is an enormous challenge for any organisation because what are you, again, what do you want to measure and then what do you want to track? And you can't do everything. Um, so you, ha you really have to, to look at what am I trying to achieve here through this kind of data exercise. And, you know, data it's a data exercise, but it's got a human element, right? You, you know, you're having interactions either through transactional or uh, kind of an, uh, engagement type activities. Um, the, so the scale of the movement of that data as well. So it's not just about holding it, it's about who's getting it, how often they're getting it, why are they getting it, what are they using it for? That, again, I, I think there's a lot of challenges around that because historically you push a lot of that data to people you know, you, you give them a file. Um, now you're getting to technologies which allow them to come and consume it. You know, you, obviously you've got security, so that's the challenge. Security around what people can and can't see, how and what they do use it for. Again, I've seen the organisations really challenged by that security element of the push in the pool. You know, here's a cupboard, come and take it. You've got access to the top shelf and the bottom shelf, but you can't you can't see anything in the middle shelf. How do you, you know, how do you control that? And and you've got cottage industries, you've always got cottage industries of where this data can go to and how they can then, you know, there's a primary lens and then there's a secondary lens and then there's a tertiary lens and I don't know what a fourth lens would be called. But you're getting to the point where, you, you know, once you've shared it primary, the control of where that goes after that is a real challenge for organisations, I think. Uh, and that's a real security and GDPR challenge that, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to map who's seeing your data. The accuracy, you need some of your core stuff has to be very accurate. The accuracy of the other elements of the data, experience-led data, 
Um, I think you've got some flexibility there. I think organizations try too often to try to get all of the data to be perfect. And I think that's not necessary anymore, but you obviously need to have controls and accuracy around that core HR, people, organizational data, because it's you know real time. People want to know how many people do I employ? What are they doing? Where are they? Are they, you know, mobility, especially in the virtual world that we seem to live in at the moment? Mobility seems to be maybe not as important, but it still is important. You know, it's about when can you work, where can you work as much as anything. Um, so that controls and governance around, you know, the accuracy and the management and the maintenance of the data is a big challenge. And I think for me, the primary is is is, is ownership. I think that's still a big problem for uh, businesses, organisations. Is HR data really owned by HR? What is HR data? I I, I, I think in, in all of my years, everyone thinks it's HR, but a lot of the times it's compliance. And it might be that HR is the custodian because the technologies or the systems or the databases hold that data. But the actual ownership is a key point to, to try to get um, agreed uh, upfront early or, or, or just generally, because I think once you get that, you get good practices around the management and the accuracy and the consumption of that data. So you, you make some great points. And I, I want to build on that for the around the accuracy and the ownership of the data, because I think when we look at data, one of the key words that you want to associate with it is trust. Do I trust that information? And that's around you know, who's entering it, how it's stored, how you move it around, who owns it. All of those concepts build up into, do I now trust this information? And without trust, it almost becomes meaningless, doesn't it? You can almost say, actually, if I don't trust that information, I should probably throw it away rather than try and use it. So have you seen any good practices in, in some of the projects and the organizations you've worked with in terms of you know, building that trust and managing the integrity of that data that's being gathered? You mentioned, for example, you know, who even enters the data anymore? And it's always in the past was HR, but going forwards, is, is that something else? And, and Michael, another point there. Yeah, and, and just to add to it, what's, what's Mark's point of view on the organization that say, I want 10 years worth of data? I want to import 10 years worth of it. And, that, and that's another layer into the into the debate as well. You know, what's your thoughts? What's your thoughts on this view of, yeah, we need to have eight years or nine years or 10 years for trend analysis, for example? Yeah, well, I, I, you don't. I think, you know, I'll be honest with that. You don't need that. Um, you need it for some elements of it. But, you know, yeah, you know, you take the last 10 years of performance reviews across. No. Really, no. And, and, and in a lot of environments, you're not allowed to, right? Because you've got the data cleansing and, and the data um, purging that you know, maybe maximum seven years. And, and a lot of people want to take everything across. So there's always something you want to take across. So you might want a couple of years of core HR data in your existing technologies, new technologies, whatever it may be, but find a place for the old stuff because it's changed, right? The, the, the structure of the data has changed. The definition of the data has changed. You, you can't compare like for like from year to year sometimes in certain data components. So yeah, you know what's what's important. I think is you know core H, core information against your organisation, your employees. Um, if you're migrating, yeah. Um, but but yeah, maybe one to three three years. I would say is a maximum for that really important stuff. Uh, find a place for the other stuff or in many instances, in my experience, just don't take it across because it's either out of date 
or it might be, for want of a better technical phrase, a bit rubbish. Um, I, and I've seen that. You know, we, we encourage people not to look at anything beyond that core HR data when they're looking at sort of transformation and transition to just figure out the cleanliness and the quality of that data, people, organisation. But the stuff around, you know, maybe employee background, previous experience, the things that are really important, skill sets and competencies, they're probably out of date. The employee hasn't interacted with that data for a number of years, if at all. Uh, if you're going into a very visible transactional technology and it's wrong, it's, 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 it's more annoying that it's wrong than it's not there at all, I think, is the sense. So, and my experience is people fill it in where there's a gap, they will fill it in. Uh, not a company I worked at, um, we, you know, we were doing a performance talent learning implementation. Um, there was a whole bunch of stuff around previous work experience, mobility, languages, whatever you want to call against that person's background. Um, we didn't take any of that across. Uh, uh, and within three months, I think 80,000 people had updated that against their own profile. And the, the benefit for me was, and the, the thing that blew my mind was, we didn't tell anyone that that performance talent bio existed. So there was a lot of gaps in it, but they just filled it in and nobody complained about it. Um, so that, that to me is kind of to your question, Michael, just, you know, the real core stuff is important around some of your financials, your headcount, but the other stuff, it's probably a waste of time and energy. Um, you know, in the Facebook and LinkedIn and world, people just fill in gaps now and they don't get annoyed about it if it's not there. Tell them it's not there, they'll get annoyed about it. Um, so maybe, you know, hide some of that. Because the sort of good practices, I mean, it sounds simple, um, but it's, it is that single point of quality control. Now, whether that's in a project or a sort of services and operation environment, it's important to have a function or a group of people, not just a head, that has a responsibility to look at the quality, the, 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 the gaps in your data, uh, core and non-core, because, you know, non-core, like I say, experience type data is, is more impo as important now as core, so to speak, if that makes sense. But yeah, you know, it, it's a single point of control, give someone the ownership of the control, but the biggest challenge still remains is the ownership of the data. And you really have, the, the best places I've seen it done well is when everybody agrees who owns the data. The, the, the guardianship or the custodianship will sit within HR. I don't think anyone disputes that. But what they have a problem on is when it's a compliance type piece of data or maybe a financials piece of data. That is not HR data. So get that agreed up front, sign it off and, and, and accept that someone will, will have, have a pair of eyes on it and they'll be looking at it through reports, analytics or robotics, give it to you and it needs to be actioned against, whether that's a cleanup or a, an analysis against it. You know. So I think that's where I've seen real benefit. And it does sound really simple, but I've very rarely seen it. To say it's not been done well is probably wrong, but it, it, it creates such a muddle and an argument and dispute that you spend so much time in that space, you're not focusing on cleaning up or assessing and analysing the data. And that kind of analytics space is where it's really key now. So I always encourage people from early stages of any kind of data, technology or process transformation, you need, you need to agree the ownership of this now. Move forward, define it and own it, and then move forward. I love that part of the conversation as well. Like, you know, the, the changing of, of the HR ownership, if you like. 
Do, do you sometimes see it's difficult for HR to let go of that? I mean, you know, they have to almost find a new existence for themselves. Uh, and of course, you know, when they're buying a new system, they're the ones buying the system. But you know, are they looking for a different reason now and a, a, a different place in the organisation uh, as to what role HR will play? Uh, yeah, yeah, you've thrown me a bone there, Simon. Uh, I think the reality for me is you have to get beyond HR quickly now in any of these conversations. It's HR type data, but the consumption of that data is the key. People are running stuff off of that data now. Analytics, you know, businesses. If you're changing it, they need to know. They really do need to know that you're about to make a change to that data because they'll be using it for something that you're just oblivious to. So, And that's not a bad, you just don't know, you haven't asked them before. So now you really need to engage them on that, why are you using it? This is what it's going to look like as we move forward into the, the future world. How does that impact you? Mostly it's a positive impact, but they don't have that conversation early enough. And sometimes it's after you've gone live with some stuff and that's when things break and then you're in a real pain point. You know, so I always encourage a customer to really get that conversation from the very, very start. You know, it sounds strange to say that you think that would happen, but a lot of people just don't jump straight into it. They think it's the same as it was and it's just going to be a, everything changes is what we say. Rightly or wrongly, everything is about to change. To, to your point about, you know, are HR reluctant? Yeah, I think they are. In my previous experience, they have had an existence, this will be, I don't know how good this goes down, but the existence is on the basis of you provide that support and a level of administration to your business heads. So the people that are revenue generating, let's put it that way. Yeah? And what you're now giving them is, is data and analytics that they probably want. They'll always want to know what's my expertise around my function. Is there someone in this business that I have no idea exists that can fit this, this role that I don't need to go and externally recruit for. That's the thing that a head of business always wants. They want to know that. But I think sometimes that's lost. You know, we're trying to control what we share rather than let them see it. And then your job is to help them assess strategically how that will help them grow or save costs or retain talent that they, they may not necessarily have understood contributed in a certain fashion. And I've seen it firsthand where, you know, when I've gone through talent uh, as a leadership team, we've gone through the nine box grid of a talent management conversation before we put on the system that had all of that on the screen and it was all movement real time. The HRBP's job was to take down the outcomes. Once she then flipped it to the people in the room looking at the screen on the nine box, it became about that person is not a nine because you complain about them every day. But yeah, actually I do. So they're not a nine, right? They're not the high talent that you're saying they are. And that was just a completely different, it was hugely beneficial to the, the room that a very independent view was saying to the room, I am listening to you when you moan about people or when you've got something to say about something. But more often than not, if I don't have the tools and the data available to me, I'm the admin. Whereas I'm now the person saying, I'm the challenge. It's your decision. It's your control. It's not mine anymore. And it, it's a change, it's a capability shift. And to be fair, uh, some, some in HR are, are ready and there for it, and some just need to be reset a little bit. And again, that's just part of the conversation when you look at what does the technology and the data give you when you make that transformation? It gives you more time to make more informed, better decisions. 
and you're in the decision-making process now. You're not the person noting the decision. You're actually sometimes driving the conversation and challenging the conversation. And that's a, that is a huge shift for a lot of people, but it's a, it's a really beneficial change for the HR leadership and the sort of the, the, that, that strategic insight. Michael, just want to pull pull over to yourself, so to build on on that. I, I just have a quick question because one of the things that comes up a lot, and I have this in my own career, is off cycle processes. So it's not even not sure we used to call it data; it's more intelligence. So things like who who captures risk of loss, who captures impact of loss, who who captures future leaders. I, I always think this is that middle ground, but it's but it's it's still so crucial in the decision making that you were discussing. I, I'm, I'm conscious that we've got a number of questions, but I just wanted to get a quick viewpoint from yourself of who's accountable for that? You know, where does that sit? Who who, who does it? Because it is critical. I don't think there's a single point in HR that does it because it's a silo-driven function sometimes. You know, your talent lead leadership is different from your performance leadership, is different from your reward and comp and your recruitment and talent acquisition. And that still seems to be to me, for bigger organizations, a real challenge is you're missing the retention. You're, it's the management, the, lead, the, the direct line management that has that knowledge and that capability and nobody's asking them. And I think when I did the first sort of big integrated implementation that I was involved in, what blew me was that, you know, a manager's probably 50% correct in projecting who's going to leave an organization. Looking at LinkedIn or Facebook, or just, you know, the empathy around being in the office with someone, these tools are 80 to 90%. And they won't just tell you who, they'll tell you when and why. You know, so is it because they've been stuck in the same job for three years? Is it because their comp hasn't gone up? Is it that they're being marked down in a performance review against other comparable expertise? Uh, and the, the data and the predictive analytics of the machine learning can do that now. And that still blows my mind. And we don't show that enough when, when, when we're in the transition into that kind of transformation that that's the sort of thing you're going to get to. The system will tell you. It doesn't forego a conversation, but at least you now know where to focus your efforts if you do want to really commit to talent retention. And even within acquisition, depending, I guess, on which industries you're in and the regulations you follow, you could look at the, um, you could look at the, uh, the kind of marketplace data to determine if there's someone out there that would fit your organization. Some people allow it, some people don't, but you know, yeah. So I think that's where I see it, Michael. It's just, it's at the management level just now, direct line management, but if you let the system do it, it it's much more accurate. Uh, and it will save you a lot of time and effort in, I guess, recruitment and onboarding and offboarding, right? Which costs um, time and money. So we've talked last 30 minutes or so, and we've talked about HR and, and HR's use of the data. Let, let's widen this out a little bit now, back to the organization, because um, quite, re quite recently we've had a lot of conversations, certainly Michael and myself have, around something we call the connected enterprise. And we're connecting together pieces of data. And we talk about the value of HR information for non-HR people, finance, supply chain, logistics, et cetera. And of course, the value of their data for HR as well, and connecting that together for a much deeper insight into what's going on. Now, that's also challenged with this perennial debate about do you have best of breed or do you have sort of an ERP type holistic solution that connects everything together already internally? 
and we've noticed that a lot of organizations you know, have created in the past these little islands of, of, of information, HR or finance or this pocket or that pocket. What are your thoughts on some of that? And, and where do you think that needs to go in the future now? There is a trade-off. I think there's a trade-off between that kind of the single view of your data sitting in one thing, one technology or one database, whatever it may be. And then there's always this trade-off of uh, very employee uh, experience-led design. Uh, so the, the data is important because you want to be able to have consistency of definition, the ability to control it infrequently in one place as possible. And the challenge with the best of breed environment is that the movement is between different technologies or different processes or different services, if you want to even just look at it from maybe an outsourcing lens. And that to me is, I don't think organizations have really landed on it. A couple of years ago, everyone was flipping towards a single integrated system. You would then get the joined up analytics, uh, you'd get joined up employee experience, um, and, but you wouldn't get best of breed. So you might have a really great experience in the performance and learning space, but not so good in the recruitment and onboarding space. And that is the trade-off. And I think it's what organizations miss is what is it you're trying to fix for? But I think a lot of organizations are then moving towards a kind of skills-led assessment, which is employee life cycle for me. So it's from, um, I guess, attraction to exit in a way and how that all joins up. You can use best of breed. I, I still think as long as you've got a consistent experience for the employee that works, it's okay for them for it to look and feel a bit different now and again. But I still think that that provides a challenge for organizations around inconsistency of the data because, uh, and this is a very transactional level response, but a field in a recruitment system named something might be called the same thing in the performance side and it means two different things in the two systems. And your core HR data source may, may call it something else. So there's a real challenge in that. If you want to go into that best of breed world, you really have to get that definition locked in. You have to appreciate that sometimes you're going from one piece of data to multiple pieces of data or multiple pieces of data back to one piece of data. I hope this all makes sense when people listen to it. But it's just to me, that's the sort of thing that People just don't understand that it's not a one-for-one -one relationship between these technologies. And an integrated system is more integrated in that it talks to itself, it understands itself, it knows what each thing means. When you're moving it around, you, you have the same challenges. I think Simon, of it's not consistent. You can get over the employee experience if the tool sets work and they're efficient and effective and do what you want. But I think it will still provide uh, challenges to the, the more executive leadership who want to be able to um, see quickly dashboards around either experience or transactional stuff or headcount stuff, it, it, it will be difficult to bring it always back to one source. And I've seen so many organizations trying to do a kind of standalone um, single source of data, uh, and I haven't seen it work yet. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It just still presents the challenges that I've always been used to, which is you still need someone to take a look at that like, analytic at the end before you share it, rather than being able to you know, click on a button on a screen and you're pretty sure you can trust that data and it's the right data. With the amount of time, I mean, we could keep talking about this all yeah. night, I'm sure. And, and that seems to have been a consistent theme in, in a lot of our episodes that we've had. It, these topics are huge sometimes, but 
if you were to now reflect just on this topic in general, um, and just to close out with this final question, do you have sort of two or three tips or little nuggets of advice that you've seen, things to think about that you think are just best to share at this point on, on this whole topic? Uh, yeah, I've got a couple which I think is sim should sound simple. Um, one is just preparation, and that's not a nugget, but people just miss the fact that you don't jump straight into this. You need to take time at the start to think about what you've got today, what you're trying to get to in the future. And if you bought something to get to, a system or something else, what's that going to look like? You know, most people don't prepare. They just jump straight in. They have, you need to agree the data dictionary, the definitions around it, the ownership and the controls and governance. You don't need to have it in place there and then, but you need to agree that that's what, when you switch this thing on, that's what it's going to be. And if you do that, you can accelerate through anything, I think, in many ways. Preparation is just fundamental to being successful. Attached to that, simplistically, again, is you have to take the time to assess the impacts on your current landscape and engage with the people who consume that data. That sounds as simple as it is. You know, understand what you've got, understand how you're going to impact, engage, and then move forward. Things will always change. Things will always be impacted. Some people will like it, some people won't. But at least go talk to them. And like I said earlier, that, that does entail getting beyond HR as quickly as you can. You know, as soon as you've bought a new thing, you know what the future looks like now. You can go show them it. You don't need to wait anymore. You know, it's there, it's ready. You can switch it on if you want to and people can see it. So for me, that's really important. And there's all these cottage industries out there that you start to, 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 to sort of find. And that's not right or wrong, it's just they exist and you're trying to get them back on board. And so those those are two kind of things that I try to encourage a customer, really, really early preparation and engagement. The other thing is, two, two other things that we don't mind. One is just don't waste time trying to reconcile your data between finance and HR. It's different views. They will be the same at an instantaneous point in time, probably at a month end where your headcount might reflect in finance the same as it does in HR, but one's looking at it from a financial lens and one's looking at it from a heads and people lens. They are different numbers, you know, one's heads, one's costs. And too many organisations spend too much time trying to get it to be the same answer at every point in the process. It will never be the same answer. It genuinely isn't. Tried it so many times and it doesn't, doesn't reconcile. Don't waste time doing that. That's just too many people do it. It just seems to be something that everyone falls into. And the fourth thing for me is just finally is um, predictive analytics. I have no idea where these things go, but what I've seen is things like chatbots. They are machine learning tools, but they have to learn. If that makes sense. And too many people think that what you're buying gives you all the answers. So a chatbot will help me with my services, it will help me with my tier zero and my tier one and my services centers. Yes, but it doesn't have your organization's answers. It needs to be asked the questions. So take time thinking about what you want the questions to possibly be answered and then let it be there for people to ask the questions. And, and, and it will learn to answer it or you will learn the questions that you should have been asked. So, you know, I think that, is a world for me which over the last 12 months especially chatbots predictive analytics have begun to understand more and how the data works around that and it does really learn stuff and it becomes really really important 
but it doesn't have the answers until you allow it to ask, be asked the questions. And it takes time to ask the questions, assimilate the data, and then start to, to generate more automation in your, your interactions with your colleagues. So, you know, you, you've got to give it time, but you've got to get it in quick and let it be asked the questions. Don't try to define too quickly too much what you want it to ask. You don't know what your employees are thinking most of the time. So that's the kind of lesson for me in the last 12 months that you've got to let it learn. Which sounds strange, but doesn't switch on and work. You've got to let it learn. Give it time, but get there quickly. All of those points really resonate with me as well, and my experience and what I've seen in the, in the business. That are really powerful messages, I think, and hopefully they'll give you know the, our audience you know those things to think about and and those uh, things to address. Even as you say, before the project even starts, it's just yeah that preparation that that really stands out for me. Look, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode. I, I've really enjoyed that, Mark. I, I've been enthralled by you know some of your points of view and some of the, the the answers to some of those questions that we've had. I want to say you know thank you very much for for agreeing to appear on our podcast. Um, and what I'll do is I'd like to just close the podcast there, and, and um, hopefully the audience will will really enjoy listening to that whole topic uh, of data management. Thank you again, Mark. So, Michael, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. It was my first time in the chair. Uh, I, I love some of the points that uh, our guest was making there. Really, really fascinating insights. And uh, again, it was difficult to fit that into the time. I felt, again, that we could go on talking for a long time there. So, a, a lot of points covered, I think. Um, we, we got into a lot of different areas of data and how it's managed. Um, I, I, I was particularly interested in some of his points, especially around you know, the, the thoughts about you've got to be prepared when you're looking at data, you know, taking time to just stop and think, who's going to own this? Um, who's going to govern it and maintain it? But what are you going to do with it as well? I mean, again, we, we, we talked a little bit around the topic of don't capture it if you don't want it, or if you don't trust it, don't keep it. I, I just thought that was fascinating. What are your thoughts and what did you get from that conversation? For me, I, I go back to baseline. I mean, you talked there about, you know, the sort of acting upon it and what are you using it for? But it goes back again to, but what's your baseline? Irrespective of where you are, you have to have a base for you to move from. And I'm glad that Mark talked to that. I, I think the other one for me, and it goes a little bit back to the conversation we were having with Vcas, wasn't it, right? Uh, about that sort of human-centered approach. And he was talking about the algorithmic layer and I loved how Mark was almost going, oh, hang on, we've got this contextual data now. I don't know where it's going, you know? Um, and I love that. I love the fact it's open-ended. We don't actually know where all these things are going. So, no, listen, it was a great conversation, wasn't it? And uh, it was nice for me to be able to sort of listen in a little bit more today. And uh, you did a great job. And uh, I hope our listeners enjoy the episode on what we think is a really important episode. And I'm going to go off now and have uh, a customary cup of tea and uh, and I, as i said i hope i i hope our listeners enjoy and uh, and until the next episode goodbye